0: Hello, everyone. and Welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Peter Christian Nagner, and today we're speaking with Julian Zelizer about his new book, The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress and the Battle for the Great Society. Julian, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Why don't you uh, begin by telling us uh, just a little bit about yourself? Uh, You'll be familiar to most of our listeners, I think, at least in the scholarly community. But um, why don't you tell us about uh, how you came to this project first?
1: Well, I'm a a professor at Princeton, and I've written uh, several books on Congress and on American politics in the 1960s and 70s, so I've done a lot uh, on Lyndon Johnson, on this period, on Congress during these years, and I wanted to just bring it all together uh, in a narrative and a synthesis that captured the whole era. And I also started it in 2008, 2009, right when President Obama was elected, and there was all this talk about a dysfunctional Congress, uh, which resonated with what I had learned about Congress in the early 1960s. So I wanted to know why is there this moment in the middle of the 1960s when all this legislation passed? Um, And so it was a great opportunity to use history to look at some of the questions of today. Finally, you know, there was... Been Obama Johnson comparisons uh, since he was elected, um, so I was already writing the book. But it became interesting to me to think about how relevant those were uh, and what some
0: of the differences were. Yeah, a lot of this feels uh, uncomfortably familiar. Um, what I uh, the the main thing I like about your book, there's much to like about it, but um, we have this strange impression uh, in uh, popular culture that. Johnson was successful because as you as you note know, uh, because he was this larger than life personality that the master of the Senate um, this person who you know through use of the treatment or because of the growth of the imperial presidency was able to push all this massive li- liberal legislation through Congress um, by th- sheer force of will right and what's oddly left out in this is Congress which is the central um, a lawmaking body and uh, alternatively, if it's not this, it's the impression that the 60s were just a more liberal era, which as you, you know, noted in the beginning, was not at all the feeling that most liberals had at the, at the dawn of the, of the decade.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the issues that's always interested me, its it's been at the center of my writing, is bringing Congress back into American history. And um, years and years ago, I wrote a book chapter called Beyond the Presidential Synthesis, which uh, actually uh, used a quote by Johnson that I use in this book uh, about presidential power. And, and um, I think Johnson, uh, for many decades, was actually hated as one of the most ineffective presidents we've had because of Vietnam. And he's had this revival in the last 10 years uh, where people speak about him, not just academics, but politicians and journalists as this quintessential uh, uh, political mastermind uh, who as president really understood how to make the machine work, so to speak. And a lot of the explanation revolves around his ability to twist arms and to trade pork uh, and to say just the right thing in a phone conversation. And uh, he was a great a politician and I talk about that in the book but what really the question was why does Congress Uh, finally decide to move along with what he was proposing. And I think all those arguments about the treatment weren't enough. And you really had to look into the dynamics of Capitol Hill to understand what changed members of Congress from being uh, largely a body that said no to everything, uh, to a body that said yes to almost everything for about two years, uh, and why that comes to an end. Uh, So when you put Congress front and center and really understand the institution, some of the arguments and history we have about the Johnson treatment is is colorful and fun but it doesn't really capture uh what was going on and how much Johnson depended on a Congress uh that turned
0: in his favor for a couple of years yeah there's this there's this impression I mean we saw this at low points in the um for supporters of the obama administration uh where journalists are are basically urging him to be more like johnson and twist arms and things or or to rely on executive action which really you know in a perverse way sort of misunderstands the government right and um right you know the the greater power that legislation has over executive actions the spirit limits of executive action and and um you know, as, uh, as Obama said not too long ago, right? Presidents aren't kings. Right. Um, they, they can't simply uh, wave their wand and get the, the Congress to do things for them.
1: And he under, Johnson understood this more than anyone. I mean, that's one of the remarkable things about him. He was someone who had been in Congress for a long time, most of his career before he becomes president. And he understood and told his advisors all the time, uh, you know, just how powerful Congress was, not to forget that, not to take it for granted not to make assumptions about what they could get through Congress uh, without courting the right people, without putting the right pressure on the legislative branch. And um, he always thought his moment for passing a lot of stuff would be pretty quick um, because he just always was talking about how Congress eventually would turn on him. And then it didn't really matter what he did um, because they were going to shut down that window of legislating. So he understood that very well. I think most presidents do. Uh, Kennedy did too he he said when once he was in office for a year he said Congress looked a lot more powerful from the White House than it did when he was just one of the many members on Capitol Hill and I think it's a learning curve that most presidents go through I think Johnson knew it from day one and that's part of the reason he pushed so fast to get so much done uh, because
0: his assumption was the good times would end pretty quickly right I I I don't. I wish I had uh, written down that quote um, where Johnson basically says we have we have just a very very short window here. But uh, you find this with other presidents as well, um, and I think it's something that the, the public seems to strangely uh, misunderstand with presidents the way that the office is in the, you know, the White House has become. At least in the public imagination, it's it's the center for major legislative action, and and yet you know the the window is very small and their powers are very limited. Um, so a book like this is a welcome sort of antidote. Um, the other thing is that there's a sort of partisan dimension to this, right? You, you mentioned in the in the book that um, because of the way it's structured, uh, the Congress had been the primary base of power for the right, right? You know, then as well as, well as now, I would say. Um, but this often seems sort of oddly absent from our historical thinking, even some of the historical work on this.
1: Yeah, I mean, so you know, the 1930s through the 1960s. If you read most textbooks and uh, you know most accounts of the period, this is the heyday of American liberalism. This is from FDR to LBJ. If you're using presidents as marks, uh, as the period when liberalism was strong, the ideas of liberalism had strong support, and it was possible to get government to do uh, many things. Uh, but But uh, if you look at the history of Congress, it's just a very different story. And from the late 1930s uh, through the mid-1960s, the power in Congress revolved around this coalition of Southern Democrats who were very conservative on issues like race relations and like union rights, and these Midwestern Republicans like Everett Dirksen of Illinois, um, who although he's remembered for helping pass the Civil Rights Act, was a very conservative, anti-government Republican. And they had immense power. They controlled the committees. They controlled the schedule of Congress, and they didn't allow things up for a vote that they didn't want. Um, and so, uh, the heart of American politics was very conservative through the mid 1960s. And if you read most accounts about Congress in the early 60s, it's anything but a liberal institution. Uh, people are writing just how much power this conservative coalition had to block civil rights, to block Medicare, to block education policy, uh, to block almost anything. One senator, Joseph Clark, calls it the sapless branch of government. Uh, that's how he sees his colleagues. And I think that was the reality, not just the sentiment of the period. There's another book that, for me, was very helpful. Uh, Ira Katz Nelson wrote a book on the New Deal in the 1930s, which does the same thing for that period, puts Congress right at the center and gives you a better sense of the limits of what FDR could do.
0: Right. I was just going to mention that, actually. Um, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, the development of the of the old committee system and and why this uh, gives us, as Kes Nelson refers to it, the the southern cage.
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, the way Congress worked in the twentieth century was through the process of seniority, and uh, the way to advance yourself in Congress was to just stay in office as long as you could. You didn't have to be loyal to the party. You didn't have to be a great legislator. You just had to stay put and not die or not lose your position and uh, south. Southerners had very safe seats. It was an area of the country where Republicans were non-existent until the 1970s, Uh, and in most primaries, incumbents could muster what they needed to keep their position. And so, Southerners were very good uh, at moving up the ladder. And what happens in the late 30s after uh, after FDR's landslide? Re-election in 1936, he pushes for things like uh, the court packing plan and the reorganization of the executive branch, which leads many Southerners to really, uh, you know, lose almost any support for the president or for New Deal liberalism, and they form an alliance with Republicans who were in the minority for most of this period, uh, but combined with these Southern Democratic chairmen, had enough votes to kill legislation in committee uh, and to kill it on the floor. And so uh, their numbers were significant until 1964. And the other thing, uh, this was an era when just the norms of Congress and the way the rules worked placed a lot of authority in the committee leaders. So the committee leaders didn't have to listen to the Speaker of the House, for example, in terms of what they should or should not do. Uh, They had a lot of autonomy to kill a piece of legislation on their own uh, if that's what they wanted.
0: Right, I mean, and this gives us—you know—this this leads leads us to the development of these liberals who are talking about, it's um, like some of the people we mentioned. We'll talk about this later with the Democratic Study Group and folks who are talking about responsible party government because uh, the government feels very fragmented. If he, the, the parties are fragmented, there's this famous report that comes out in 1950 by the American Political Science Association on this. Um, and a sense of, of, of how uh, from the New Deal experience, right? Even with tremendous support for a lot of these programs, Congress is able to thwart these these very undemocratic or unrepresentative uh, uh, parts of Congress are able to thwart majority will. I mean, there's a impression out there that the FDR's court packing scheme is, you know, just an example of sort of liberal overreach or dictatorial presidential power. But you know, as Susan Dunn and other people have talked about, it, I mean, he's responding. To uh, folks in Congress or people on the Supreme Court who were willing to, uh, you know, try to roll back even tremendously popular uh, legislation early on in the New Deal.
1: Right. So the way that 30s period had worked before the court packing was, FDR basically had governed within the world where Southern Democrats had power and so uh, what Ira Katz-Nelson writes about and some others have written about is that programs like social security or welfare programs would always create a lot of space um, uh, for uh, state and local government on many programs so that the Southerners could protect race relations and a lot of union issues got uh, pushed aside in the decades that followed uh, for that reason. The court packing was a culmination of the tensions that existed. Within um, within the Democratic Party, and by the early '60s, uh, because of this report, the political scientists had written. Because of what a lot of popular writers were writing about, bipartisanship was the problem. And today we talk about bipartisanship as a solution, but back then, if you were a liberal, you needed less bipartisanship. The whole argument of liberals who were coming into Congress in the 50s and early 60s was that the party needed to unite uh, and that Southerners were essentially a growing uh, but uh, a powerful minority uh, increasingly that dictated because of this alliance with Republicans what the party could or could not do. Uh, So that was the thrust of liberal reform in the early 60s. Make the place more partisan if possible.
0: Right. I mean, you know, the Southerners uh, and your point about the population I mean, I think Southerners are something like a, a third of the population in the 30s, but by the 60s, they're down to a fifth. But Southerners are in control and command of a majority of the, of the committees. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, the, the heavy emphasis on seniority, which is somewhat unique to the United States, um, uh, is uh, just aggravated by the fact that you have a one party dictatorship essentially in the South where, you know, folks like uh, Howard K. Smith, who's sitting on the Rules Committee, uh, who's the gatekeeper for a lot of legislation, uh, you know, is repre- it comes from an area that, uh, what is it, the famous VO Key line that, that uh, Virginia made Mississippi look like a hotbed of democracy. Right. And yeah. These various voter laws and other things keep people out. And, and you know, there's a, there's a sort of corollary in the North, too, where you have um, these systems of unequal representation or representation based on Land similar to you know the, the federal system with the with the Senate. Well, I suppose we could talk about this a little bit later because the Senate is really important to all this. But yep. um, and Johnson yeah, Johnson sense- had seen all
1: this in the time he was the Senate Majority Leader in the nineteen fifties because um, he had always struggled. Uh, he understood the Southerners ruled the roost, and he was very respectful. But he was under pressure from a growing number of liberals who were coming both into the House and the Senate during the nineteen fifties who were telling him this is not you know, tenable anymore. And all these issues are not being dealt with. It's harmful for our presidential candidates. It's harmful for the party. It was morally not right. Um, So he had spent much of the decade before he's president trying to balance these two competing voices within the Democratic Party. But, you know, one of the first things he does as president, uh, which people forget, is he agrees to a very stringent budget. Uh, He's desperately uh, eager to have a tax cut uh, enacted that Kennedy couldn't get through Congress because the whole idea is it will stimulate the economy uh, right in time for the election of 1964. But Harry Byrd, who's the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, also from Virginia, is saying he won't accept that tax cut which will increase deficits unless Johnson's budget is pretty limited because he knows Johnson has ambitions for legislation and Johnson to the consternation of many liberals in his cabinet agrees uh, to a pretty meager budget at the time. it was an Eisenhower level budget rather than a great society level budget and many liberals are saying, you're, cu- you know, you're cutting us uh, short right at the start. You have these ambitions but we're going to have no money but Johnson realizes people like Harry Byrd in 1963 and 1964, before the election of 64, still had the weight of power on Capitol Hill and he had no choice.
0: Right, which is a you know, stark contrast to the way we think of you know who remembers Harry Bird? how many how books are written about Harry Bird, and yet you know for LBJ sitting in the White House, Harry Bird is a very, very important person:
1: exactly, and you know
0: uh, these are the figures he's dealing with uh, when he's
1: trying to make a strategy uh, about what he's going to do in that first year. <laughs>
0: So maybe we can uh, just backtrack a little bit and, and talk about uh, the beginning chapters on JFK because it's really important to how you – know, obviously very important to how Johnson becomes president. But also so, so that's some of the background for this and the the, the buildup that uh, comes on the grounds because we're not just talking about um, Congress in this book, but we're talking also about – uh, the grassroots and how important the civil rights movement in, in particular, but also other groups like uh, organized labor and, and these other groups that had been uh, pushing to change the system for, you know, uh, for, ever since the uh, new deal um, are trying to get this legislation passed. I, I thought that I was uh, picking up on a reference to uh, James McGregor Burns in your chapter on the, the uh, deadlock democracy and, um, but uh, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about JFK and how his presidency fares compared to uh, Johnson and why. Uh,
1: for, so first, that title does come uh, from James McGregor Burns, who was uh, both a political scientist and a public intellectual who did more to popularize this idea um, that basically you had two uh, you had four parties at the time. Southern Democratic, Congressional Party, a uh, liberal, presidential party, and the the Republicans were divided similarly, uh, and it created this deadlock. Nothing got done because of all these divisions. Uh, and this is all front and center when Kennedy becomes president. Uh, Kennedy is very hesitant to do much on civil rights because his advisors like Harris Woford, who is a strong civil rights advocate, tell him you'll never get legislation uh, through Congress. And the only reason so, – so that's the Congress he's dealing with. He's pushing Kennedy – for Medicare very aggressively. Uh, He has a public relations campaign for the bill. He's trying to counteract the American Medical Association, which doesn't want to pass Medicare. Um, And and he's being very non-Kennedy about it. But the fact is, uh, the legislators on Capitol Hill are not willing to move on that either. Uh, Wilbur Mills, who's the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, won't even let this bill up for a vote. Um, And so much of the Kennedy chapter is about uh, the Reality of Congress at the time will not sustain any big liberal initiative. Uh, Kennedy finally pushes for civil rights in 1963 but only after the civil rights movement has created unbearable pressure uh, on both the White House and Congress through the protests uh, that we're so familiar with, uh, such as the protests in Birmingham. And uh, it's really not until that violence takes place that Kennedy finally sends a strong bill uh, to Congress. And, and the civil rights activists, uh, just in that chapter, I'll conclude, but it's, they're not alone. Um, Part of what I argue is there's really a liberal coalition that's taken form by the early 60s with with Congress as one of their main targets and it includes civil rights groups. It includes organized labor, which is a huge force in American politics at this time through the AFL-CIO, and it includes many liberal religious organizations, which were very powerful in Washington, and by 63 also, uh, just you know, making a no to civil rights in terms of desegregation virtually. Virtually impossible, and so the story of that Kennedy year is how the grassroots movement starts to finally break that gridlock. Uh, And at the time of Kennedy's death, there's finally a bill in the hopper uh, because of what the civil rights activists had done.
0: Right, and this is and and the effect of their support of their uh, uh, pressure is bipartisan. Right, I mean Kennedy feels as though in the you know there are these. Choice quotes that I'm sure some people are familiar with were Kennedy and uh, uh, is telling Wilford to tell Martin Luther King to stop the Freedom Rides and and Robert Robert uh, Kennedy is complaining to Thurgood Marshall that you know what's the quote that's the problem with you people you want too much too fast. Um, but uh, this issue heats up in the House where you have a bunch of Republicans who start accusing the presidency of being laggard on the issue, and it culminates in this bill in 1963, early 1963, um, that's going to make the Civil Rights Commission permanent, give it more power to investigate voting rights abuses. Um, and things like Birmingham uh, only encourage these Republicans to put to hammer the White House. More and fi- so f- that finally JFK feels compelled to put forward this bill, the, you know, the draft for the civil rights bill that we know.
1: Right, and uh, you know the Republicans are are feeling uh, by the end of Kennedy's presidency both that you know they they can't be the party that allies with Southern Democrats on this that politically it's actually going to be a problem for them, and they also start to sense you know um, that this partisan competition they can actually be the party that's more aggressive on civil rights because. Democrats have this baggage of the Southerners. Um, And so you have more voices calling on Kennedy to do this and threatening to do it on their own. And the administration is very uh, aware of this and worried about this. Um, And so for all these reasons, finally, uh, Kennedy pushes this through, although he, at the time of his death, is still uncertain of how this will ever get through the Senate, um, where there's this procedure called the filibuster uh, that gives the Southern Democrats. Democrats a lot of power. But the bill finally moves really because uh, not of a a kind of great era of liberalism, uh, but really because the civil rights activists had forced everyone's hand by November of '63.
0: Right. I mean, you recount this famous meeting where, you know, after the March on Washington, which is, you know, follows Birmingham, and it's this galvanizing event, you have a quarter, you know, some upwards of a quarter million people showing up in Washington. And and the way it's sort of become canonized in in folklore is that it was just part of this progressive social movement that just, you know, swelled and, and carried this legislation through Congress. But JFK has a very different attitude when he's sitting down with the leaders of the big organization. He basically You know, uh, goes through this vote counting uh, and and explaining to them that, that, you know, I mean, you conclude that chapter by saying that Kennedy, uh, right before his assassination, had admitted that he had almost no strategy. That there's a quote here you used there. He said, Basically, where he's saying, I don't see how almost on any bill we can get past we can get a two thirds vote for cloture because of things like the filibuster, exactly. right? Which is con- which is this constant which uh, constant uh, has this constant chilling factor on legislation, all kinds of legislation throughout this period,
1: right? So uh, you know that's that's the next big hurdle, and that's really the the major after this tax cut and stringent budget. Um, you know, in Johnson's first year, I'll do two things. One is push the war on poverty which I argue is very important but at the time is a very small bill uh, in terms of the budget and it's not something that's a huge threat at the time. And The major thing is the Civil Rights Act and how do you get it through the Senate? That's kind of the problem before the election of 64 that the new president will face. Kennedy hadn't figured it out yet uh, but he had felt enough pressure to finally get a bill uh, to to the House of Representatives.
0: Right, so how does how does Johnson change all this, or or how or how do things change in Congress so that this situation? Changes?
1: Well, you know, Johnson is is fully in support of this civil rights bill, and and to his credit, decides I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep moving on this. Um, he, like Kennedy, understood that it was really almost impossible for him to survive if all of a sudden he said I'm gonna let this die. I'm not really gonna push for it. So the first part is he, like Kennedy, had felt the pressure of the civil Rights movement, his own attitudes had been changed by the movement. Um, so he was very much a product of the movement at this point, not simply a prime mover on civil rights but the key to the battle over the filibuster some of it's his arm twisting and there's great stories you know promises uh, support for a water project in Arizona just to get one senator to assure he'll vote uh, to end the filibuster but much of it is about the movement and they put together really um, a a very impressive mobilization while the Senate's debating this bill to make sure that that filibuster dies Um, so I have all kinds of stories from Liberal religious leaders coming to Washington and uh, talking, lobbying Republican senators, and saying, you know, you might not care about the African American vote in your state, but you certainly care about religious people. Uh, and they're sending messages back to preachers to talk to congregants in the spring of '64 about the need to have a vote on civil rights and to write your senators to let them know you support this. Um, religious leaders hold a vigil in Washington. Washington, 24-hour vigil ongoing to get media attention on civil rights. Organized labor puts its full support um, to things, you know, technical things like counting the votes, uh, working the halls of Congress to make sure undecided members are moving in the right direction, spreading information about all the tricks Southerners were going to play, uh, so that northerner Northern liberals could be ready to respond to them, and continuing with the protests uh, and civil rights activist protests in places like Chicago with the goal of pressuring Everett Dirksen, who is the senator of Illinois, on these issues. And my chapter really is about how that movement uh, is kind of very brilliant at that time in terms of parliamentary procedure, in terms of how the Senate works, and they are Johnson's biggest ally. They are his biggest weapon. Uh, It's not the arm twisting, it's the movement uh, that finally breaks that Southern filibuster and finally gets those Republican votes that were going to be essential uh, to letting letting the bill go through.
0: Right. You have you have this nice little piece in uh, y- in the american prospect recently where you uh, called uh, when liberals were organized where you talk about one of these groups the the democratic study group which um operates as a kind of whip system right
1: very important they're in the house of representatives they form in 1959 and throughout this period through 1966 uh certainly in the house of representatives people like richard bowling who's one of the uh... key members and frank thompson a, a legislator from new jersey uh... this is it's a it it's it serves as a whip organization for liberalism meaning they count votes they round up votes uh... it's also a great information service this is a period there's no c-span there are you know not a million magazines in washington that are giving you information about what's going on with a bill you can't look online to find this out so they would give uh, constant information every day, uh, to members of Congress, liberal members of Congress about what was going on with the bill, um, and helped make sure, uh, that bills moved forward, liberal bills moved forward. It was really a, a major force. And, uh, Kind of another example of how liberals didn't just dominate American ideas, but they were very organized in this period, including in congressional battles. And that was essential. Uh, They were essential, the Democratic study group, to many of these victories. They also served as a, a connection. To all these organizations and activists who we study about uh, outside of Washington and what was going on in the Hill, uh, they were a bridge uh, between these two worlds that w- was absolutely essential to policy victory.
0: Right. I mean, this is an age where you know a lot of the congressional debate is is, is closed to the public. We don't have we don't have cameras or C-SPAN and. Um, Lobbyists who have a bad name, uh, like uh, Andrew B. Miller and and, uh, Clarence Mitchell, for the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, are are part of this nexus that's uh, uh, operating as an information service to liberals and and keeping the pressure up and counting these votes. Um, Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, Johnson's strategy and the importance of the the election. Um, You have a a chapter titled uh, uh, cheekily. Um, how Barry Goldwater built the great society.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, it it should be standard in understanding what happened in this period. Uh, you know, elections are a basic in American politics, but I think we often downplay how important that election was, uh, the election of 1964 to the success of the Great Society and to Lyndon Johnson's success. Uh, it's a really uh, colorful campaign. You know, the Republicans choose someone who is to the far right uh, at the time, Barry Goldwater, a Republican of Arizona. Arizona and a coalition of conservatives get him to be the nominee uh, and he runs a campaign which is unabashedly conservative and argues republicans are not being conservative enough and they shouldn't shy away from their principles when they're running and uh, that republican conservative extremism is necessary. And so he runs that campaign, and Johnson responds with a pretty brutal uh, campaign that, that focuses on Goldwater being far right, and it uh, the, you know has all these famous ads in the campaign. Uh, the most famous is the Daisy ad, uh, which is a little girl picking petals off a flower, counting uh, to ten until you hear a government announcer doing the same, uh, and then it ends with a nuclear explosion. You know you can see it in her eyeballs, and the warning is Goldwater is going to lead us in to war. But there's all these domestic messages too, Goldwater is going to end Social Security. Goldwater is not in favor of Medicare. Uh, Johnson says, I fight for poverty, he won't. Um, And In the end, the campaign is devastating to the GOP, Uh, many Republicans after the 64 election don't want to be Barry Goldwater. And it's very important. It's less about Johnson than Goldwater in many ways. Many in the GOP think that at least for a little time we have to deal with these liberal proposals. We have to offer some alternative or actually support something like Medicare where we're forever going to be living under Goldwater's shadow. Uh, and the second effect of that election is it creates these huge liberal majorities uh, on Capitol Hill. So. Democrats uh, have uh, 295 seats in the House, 68 seats in the Senate. And just as important, the balance has now shifted uh, from the Southern Democrats to the Liberal Democrats. They have the numbers they need to get what they want. Uh, that is Capitol Hill in January of 65. So when Johnson starts sending most of his great society after that time, um, you know, uh, the chances of its passing are pretty good. Uh, he understands that and conservatives really don't have much to stand on uh, for the time being, including those Southern Democrats who realize. That they're beat. And there are even some reforms that take place in January 65, pushed by the Democratic Study Group to just make sure that if Southern Democrats don't get the message, uh, these reforms will ensure that they can't block legislation anymore and uh, that combination, those three things that happened because of Barry Goldwater's really disastrous campaign when we can't understate that uh, set up the context for the passage in most of the great society
0: yeah I mean if Nelson Rockefeller had been the nominee as a as, uh, uh, Johnson or the Kennedy administration feared things might have been a little bit different, right? I mean, um, it's the fact that uh, Goldwater stands out in this period after FDR as not one of the modern Republicans like Eisenhower, a a liberal Republican, quote unquote, but uh, as a guy who's representing the old anti New Deal wing of the party. Um, And taking that extreme position allows. Johnson to develop this front last strategy where, in many ways, he's describing himself as a moderate. He pushes through this massive uh, 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 tax cut. Um, He's campaigning as a sort of fiscal conservative at the same time, promising all these liberal programs that to the consternation of Goldwater and, and, I'd say, conservatives today, Americans are very supportive of. Exactly. And you know, counterfactual history is always impossible
1: to do. But I do think there's a case that if you had a different Republican, the outcome might not have been uh, as dramatic. Certainly many Republicans might have been okay uh, keeping with what they had been doing, meaning opposing much of what Johnson was fighting for. And you might not have had uh, the kind of congressional uh, makeup that you do, because a lot of the Congress uh, after 64 is a product of Republican districts uh, that vote for Democrats because Goldwater seems just too far out there, Um, and it creates an impression of a mandate, even if that wasn't the case, Uh, but that's what the media is talking about. That's what many politicians read into the election, and so um, certainly, you know, that Goldwater selection, I think, was as important as anything else. He also runs a terrible campaign, uh, which I, I think was significant. Uh, the organization was bad, the messaging was bad, and he, you know, played into his weaknesses rather than overcoming them.
0: Right, and this is a time too when, you know, I mean, demographics matter here too, where the the stronghold for the GOP is is in the north. Um not the South, right? I mean that that's very important when we when we go to the post sixties era and, and where the party goes ideologically. Also in the Midwest and
1: Republicans lose that that was really a key regional part of the GOP and in the 64 election they lose all these seats in places like Illinois and Wisconsin in places right. that never went for Democrats. Uh right. and but for two years they would be Democratic seats and those votes were what passed a lot of the great society. It's not clear those districts were enamored with Lyndon Johnson it's not clear those districts were feeling so bad about Kennedy that they were willing to go Democratic Uh, but what the evidence suggests is they they, they were kind of worried that Goldwater was the wrong
0: person to be president right, so in other words I mean the, the, the sum of this is instead of thinking about Johnson like FDR, this just giant personality forces these things through, like the early New Deal, the great society depends tremendously upon this huge supermajority that the liberals get.
1: Exactly. And you know as we move further later in the discussion, you can see when he doesn't have those majorities, it's not going to work so well. All the same tactics. But in 65 and 66, it's a supermajorities, super liberal majorities um, that are going going. going to be the key uh to why so much of this legislation starts moving
0: yeah and johnson is a perfect man for this i mean um it does leadership does matter right and he has this keen his experience is very different from kennedy who never had a leadership position in the congress and uh, there are these wonderful anecdotes where you know uh johnson is saying the night the night of the of assess or the day after the assassination that um he's got this short window he has he has this you know Uh, experience uh, this uh, Moyer Bill Moyers his speechwriter and advisor talks about how it comes upon him writing on the note charting out year by year his plan of action and um, down up to 1973 and um, you know talking with uh, Horace Busby another one of his uh, uh, counselors uh, about how uh, he's going to he's going to push through all the legislation that's been stalled essentially since he came to Congress in the late 30s.
1: Yeah, and you know one of the first conversations he has after 65 is with this guy Larry O'Brien, who's his legislative liaison, who's like the key point man with Congress. And and he tells him, you know, and I, and I have this in the book. He says, I want you to get everything that's possible, that's humanely possible, uh, in the next 90 days. And then he understands O'Brien and others in the room don't understand what's the rush in some ways, but then he goes over the history of presidencies, including FDR, and reminds them uh, that these windows don't last very long, and uh, you know, I have the quote, he says, look, I've just been elected by an overwhelming vote, but every day that I will be in office, I will be losing some of my ability to convert that victory into legislative reality, Um, and he's very, you know, that is one of the great aspects of his leadership is understanding the limits of what he could do, uh, and understanding how he had to take these opportunities because uh, they wouldn't last as long as many of his advisors were saying um, right. and then he moves you know he does that well
0: right right um, and this depends you know also on the strategy of uh, economic growth right I mean the, the, sort of betting on the the Walter Heller's uh, tax cut um, with these hopes of that he's going to uh, trim down JFK's uh, military budget Um uh, this is part of the strategy when he's pushing through the education bill and Medicare and these other things, not to talk too much about the costs, but to, um, to get this legislation through as much as, as quickly as possible.
1: Right. So he's depending first on the fact the economy is growing really at, at quite impressive uh, rates at that time. So – uh, tax revenue was flowing into the Treasury, uh, so there was money to spend. Voters were feeling pretty good about the economy, so he could deal with issues Uh you know, that weren't directly related to the pocketbook needs of most constituents. And then he was hiding costs. And, you know, this is another part. We, we lionize his leadership, but part of it was devious. Uh, he was very uh, cagey and uh, very strategic in in terms of hiding the costs, especially of Vietnam, as it unfolds. And making sure that the public and the Congress wasn't fully aware of what he was going to need. Uh, and he has this moment in 65 or 66 where this is all cont- Uh, And so the costs are not clear. The economy overall is doing well. uh, And that gives him a great uh, amount of time with these congressional conditions to keep moving forward on the domestic stuff.
0: Right. Um, So – uh, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, Vietnam and how this plays out to – I mean we're sort of skipping over maybe some of the – I don't know if you want to talk about some of the, uh, the particular legislation. There's there's wonderful chapters in here that give us a, a, a neat uh, narrative overview of the fight over the federal edu- education and the Voting Rights Act and Medicare. Um but since the, so much of our understanding of, of LBJ is caught up with Vietnam, why don't you say a little bit about this strategy that people might not be familiar with in terms of you know, how Johnson understood how Vietnam was necessary but would also ultimately devastate his ambitions for the Great Society?
1: Yeah, for Johnson, you know, he, he came from a generation of Democrats who believed that for a liberal to succeed, you had to be hawkish on defense. And one of his ongoing memories and discussions of the 1952 election when he was in the Senate and he saw Republicans win the White House with Dwight Eisenhower and temporarily win control of Congress through uh, you know, arguments about the stalemate in Korea – about the democratic inability to fight against communism through the loss of China to communism in 1949. So he he's very determined not to let that happen again. And in it, When he's president, he believes that to sustain and nurture uh, that coalition of liberals which was going to pass his bills, he had to be hawkish on national security. So in the 64 campaign, even though he runs that Daisy ad. He's also very hawkish in terms of Vietnam. Uh, The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which gives him authority uh, to use force in Vietnam, is partly a political gesture. It's a political gesture to show the electorate that he will stand firm and he talks about this explicitly in a lot of these phone conversations we can hear and in 65 and 66 the build up to Vietnam continues many people are warning him this is a bad idea Uh, you have hawks like Richard Russell in the Senate who say very clearly to him I don't know how this is going to end it seems like a big mess to us Uh, Hubert Humphrey is telling Johnson in 65 you finally don't have to be scared of the right so get out of this war right now, but Johnson dismisses all of this, and his political fears are very strong in shaping uh, his decisions on Vietnam, and the war escalates as we know, and what will happen is, uh, first you have all the college protests, but he doesn't care about those. He doesn't really care about liberal students at the University of Michigan who say the war is wrong. But what becomes a growing concern is conservatives who start to say, uh, A, you're not hawkish enough, that he's not willing to use enough force in Vietnam. People like Richard Nixon are saying that's right. And also that the costs of the war, uh, he can't hide them by 1966. They're starting to become very clear and he's going to face a choice uh, and he's going to need to raise the money he needs uh, to keep paying for this. So um, uh, part of what I talk about is his political dive into Vietnam as well as the ways in which the costs of it, the budgetary battles over Vietnam, really are uh, what start to make this issue very damaging to his administration.
0: Right. This is the classic choice between guns or butter. And what's interesting is that you know because of you know watching what happened to Truman, for example, Johnson seems very consciously aware, in ways that strangely people around him are not, of of how conservatives are going to use the war as a classic means or foreign policy as a classic means to prevent any sort of liberal domestic reform. Right. Right. Something that we can see in other periods too.
1: And he sees this, you know, uh, in the midterm elections of 1966, this starts to become very clear to everyone. So uh, in those elections, Republicans will do very well in the midterms. They'll uh, increase the number of seats in the House by, by, I believe, 47 seats. And that alliance of Southern Democrats and Republicans regained their power in 1966. And the three issues in that campaign, uh, one is a backlash against an open housing bill, uh, which would end uh, end discrimination in the sale or rental of housing that was stalled in Congress becomes a rallying point for conservatives that civil rights is going too far. The second is the threat of inflation, and many Republicans talk about deficits and the way in which overspending is creating inflationary conditions in the economy. And the third issue in the 60s six midterm campaigns is Vietnam and it's not liberal critiques of Vietnam which we study uh, but more importantly it's the conservative critique and Richard Nixon is going all over the country rebuilding his reputation by going into Republican campaigns and working with candidates to say this president is not willing to use the force that's necessary to defeat communism in Vietnam. He's not willing to use air power to just ruthlessly bomb the communists into submission. And all of this is damaging. And um, And this is Johnson's big concern that this will only intensify – and he's correct – in
0: 1967 and 1968. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I know it's hard to it's hard to um, it's hard to condone uh, his decisions on Vietnam, especially since he uh, is incredibly doubtful about the ability to win right from the get-go. But on the other hand, uh, it's hard to sort of argue with his political logic, since that's exactly how it plays out.
1: I, I think you're right, and I, I, I kinda, I'm on both sides of the fence. Obviously, it's not a favorable portrayal. This part of the book uh, that you see a president where political considerations are clearly driving military policy, and, and what is such a disastrous war, but his logic is is on target, and uh, it grows at least, it might not be the right decision, but it grows out of that congressional world that he came from, where we started our discussion, where he understood that Washington was not nearly as liberal as many of his advisors wanted, and that national security was one of the pivotal issues where conservatives could really eat away at a democratic president, and so uh, His fears were based on something very real and uh, in 67 and 68, uh, this is exactly how the conservatives come after him and so uh, his logic is grounded on something even if he made mistakes and sometimes didn't see opportunities to get out of that uh, dynamic the democrats had suffered through.
0: Yeah and you know liberals that critique him um on vietnam uh, as you i mean as you point out right it's 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 not the the protests at columbia or wherever else that are important it's it's folks like nixon and others who are the hawks who are who are attacking him on this issue that is pl- the most politically salient uh, point at the time um uh, you know and and johnson liberals that you know for a long i mean uh, the Johnson's reputation has changed uh, recently but um liberals who want to tax him on uh, Vietnam forget that even, even after the 66 election he's, he's pushing fairly significantly on domestic reforms like the Housing Act that are incredibly controversial
1: Yeah, Johnson's ambitions don't go away and, and he this housing bill starts in 66, it will finally pass in 1968 Johnson's very committed to open housing and fair housing he actually is totally sympathetic to the civil rights protesters arguments that this is an essential pillar of finishing the civil rights Revolution. He will get the bill passed uh, in 68. It only passes after King's assassination and uh, once again it's the turbulence at the grassroots that causes members of the House to say we have to do something because uh, things are going to spin out of control. And the final bill is a watered down version, really watered down version of what was originally envisioned. But Johnson's heart is still on his domestic agenda. But – But it's swamped by this point and the the guns-butter debate, uh, which you referred to, uh, really is the culmination of this battle with conservatives when uh, the conservatives in Congress who had been silent in 65 and 66 or who had actually worked with him turn on him because uh, by 1967 they have the numbers on Capitol Hill. And one of the people in the book is Wilbur Mills, uh, who is a kind of perfect embodiment of the changes going on in Congress. And in 64, he's still a major opponent of Johnson's ideas, especially Medicare. In 65, after Congress has changed, this Southern Democrat from Arkansas, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, uh, actually puts together a Medicare program that's more ambitious than what Johnson expected because he didn't want to lose and like, and then by 1967 and 68 when the conservatives are back in power, he's the one who really forces Johnson's hand uh, saying if you want a tax increase to pay for Vietnam, you're going to have to cut domestic spending beyond what you're comfortable with and there's not going to be more money. Uh, for initiatives, and that's a deal ultimately Johnson takes. Uh, but the trajectory of Will Mills through the book really captures how the changes in Congress are are quite significant and dictate what Johnson uh,
0: can or cannot do. Right. Well, so you end the book uh, talking a little bit about um, how the Great Society fares um, under Nixon and 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 the survival of that. I don't know if you want to leave by uh, maybe saying a little bit about. Um, this, what this, what you're hoping to sort of teach us about, uh, to teach readers about, uh, the importance of Congress and maybe the relevance of this sort of thing today
1: Well, the book ends by going through uh, a lot of the programs that came out of this period. And one of the arguments I make is that even though the window is short and the heart of this story takes place within a year and a half, basically, uh, the policy changes endure. And, um, you know, because of those congressional conditions, you had legislation that had bipartisan support uh, that passed often with very good numbers. uh, But the programs that were created were very strong. And even through the age of Reagan and the age of conservatism that we've lived through most of them have endured at least through today um, and so uh, you know part of it is is just the political strength of the legislation that came out of this period but if there is some kind of message that uh, I, I want to talk about it's that uh, the Congress that created that was only obtained through immense grassroots and electoral pressure and uh, we can focus on Johnson We do need to look at leadership. But if we focus too much on that, we miss the story. And we create these ongoing expectations for things that are not going to happen. Continually have these presidential elections where we hope somehow the next person is going to break through the kind of congressional gridlock that we had. But the story of the period is really about the civil rights movement. It's really about the electorate in 64 and the way in which they create But we can get, at best, a short window uh, for dealing with problems through legislation. and um, That's the argument. If we're going to do that again, that's really what we need to focus on, midterm elections. We need to focus on some aspects of the congressional process uh, that are broken, like campaign finance. Uh, Certainly liberals need to look back at the organizational accomplishments of the period to understand why liberals were ready to take advantage of that window things like the democratic study group and and that's the message uh and i think it's you know it it becomes more important all the time Um, but that's how the gridlock congress temporarily ended
0: back then well julian thank you so much for speaking with us today maybe you want to uh take us out by uh, letting readers know uh about uh what you're working on next or what you're hoping to
1: i'm starting a book on congress in the 1980s and uh Looking at a, a a congressional scandal that took place during that, which had uh, huge implications uh, for the for the next two generations of Congress in, involving the Speaker of the House. Uh, but I'm just getting started
0: right now. Okay, well, that sounds really interesting. Thank you. I look forward to that. Thanks for having me. <laughs>